and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo West Vic PHN Hub. It's Thursday the 13th of August 2022. This is the COVID-19 Echo Network Series 10 Session 3 and we're titling this session Accessing Appropriate COVID Care Health Service Pathways, Community Pathways and Escalation of Care. So I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways from which we're zooming in from this morning. We recognise their diversity, resilience and the ongoing place that First Nations people hold in our communities. And we support self-determination for First Nations people and organisations and we'll work together on closing the gap. So in our last session, we discussed the announcements regarding um, the first stage of transition of COVID positive care pathways from health service to primary care and other community health providers. Um, this transition began with the launch of the National Coronavirus Hotline, uh, a new system of notification for GPs and GPRCs, uh, linking patients who may, not, who may not have reported positive results into care. Now, this announcement was accompanied by discussion of a transitional period where arrangements would be put into place to move medium risk pathways to primary care and other community care. And while this has not taken place yet, it's it's flagged for October the 1st, um, I think it's timely for us to be having these discussions so that we can understand what these new primary care pathways might look like, what new knowledge and skills might be required to effectively manage presentations, what might some of the structural and systems issues be that we uh, that could present any safety or capacity issues in our system, um, and, and how do we need to build those support and escalation pathways locally to enable the work to be undertaken in a safe and efficient way. So ultimately, we are trying to achieve that aspiration of right time, right place care within the current grounding re grounded reality of uh, strained capacities and uh, current funding model. This morning, we'll be asking the following questions of these models and systems of care. What is the current role of health services in regards to monitoring advice and assessment for medium high risk pathways? What is the role of the public health units for priority populations um, and those who struggle to isolate? Uh, what is the current role of state and Commonwealth GPRCs and what might it be going forward? So then for us in primary care, when patients present to primary care and GPRCs, how do they kind of access us? How do GPs manage uh, moderate risk symptoms or those with moderate risk factors? And when would care escalation be required and what are the current pathways in place? And we're going to be focusing on the Grampians region in this session and we'll move in the fortnight to the Bowen region um, and hope we can kind of learn from one another. So what else do we need to know about patients on medium risk pathways to adapt these uh, clinical presentations to the realities of how we're currently managing patients in primary care? So let's get underway. Um, I think we'll pop up the etiquette slides and the learning outcomes, Katrina. Um, thanks this morning to the COVID, um, to the COVID ECHO team, Katrina and Fee. Um, I'm Bianca Forrester, GP. Um, we've got Kate Graham with us today. She's sitting um, shotgun in um, panel position. Lee's asked if I had a skiing injury. And yes, I fell off my snowboard on Saturday. I've been snowboarding for 25 years, never broken a bone, spewing. Um, so, and it's my right arm as well. So I'm thrilled naturally. Learning outcomes, look, these remained unchanged, but um, um, we're really pleased to be broadening to communicable diseases and, um, you know, really hoping that we can transition our COVID pandemic response echo uh, into something going forward that really harnesses these relationships we've been building in public and population health. So stay tuned. But we're going to discuss the state and Commonwealth risk fact, um, risk pathways. Um, we're going to look at the current pathways as described and we'll think about, really want to get into those clinical symptoms that patients are currently presenting with so we know what we're in for um, and what escalation might look like. So Naomi's going to bring us an update, new policy announcements and to talk about how the West Vic pitch is supporting us. Yeah, Kate's not bringing us an update this morning. She's going to be listening out for really how this system is going to be looking and, and contributing to system design conversations. Um, we've got Dr Jenny Helsing, um, a GP, fractional staff specialist and medical lead at Grampians Public Health Unit. If, uh, sorry, Jenny, maybe you might re-describe that title. I know you're leading the COVID positive care pathways. It's a separate hat and you've got a significant role in the public health unit as well. Yeah. 
Um, and um, we're going to meet Alan Hunger, also another GP fractional specialist from the Grampians. And when Alan pops in this morning, um, we'll get him to describe what his role is with the department. He's going to um, give us a public health update. And we're joined by Dr. Emily Doyle, a GP at, UR, at UFS Respiratory Clinic Ballarat. And you all know Danny size Welcome back to Danny, who's our operations manager extraordinaire uh, at UFS. We can't wait to hear what's been happening um, now with COVID pathways. Danny's um, given us insights into the vaccine rollout, into acute respiratory infection assessments. So she's been with us along the way. So I look forward to hearing from Danny. All right, um, with that, over to you, Naomi. Good morning, everybody. Um, we're just going to go through the few uh, COVID updates and then I've got a quick uh, update on monkeypox as well. So just pulling this slide out of the um, testing update from the state government. Uh, so any GP who writes a slip for a, pa for a patient for a multiplex respiratory panel can send that to state-based testing facilities. And now that's uh, in place until the uh, 30th of September at this stage. Uh, if it's extended, um, we'll let you know as well. So there's a pathway there. Um, so just to make sure that if you're um sending somebody to one of these centres that they need a slip. Um, I do acknowledge that there's no uh, digital way of getting a slip out uh, and we have been making some noise in that space about um, getting a digital option much like eScripts uh, for uh, respiratory testing. Thanks. COVID vaccination update. So the TGA approval of the six months to five years, or oh, less than five years for Moderna. Uh, we have been notified of the clinics that have... Uh, uh, been allocated uh, proportion of doses and that so each clinic has up to 300 doses which they can order um, up to six times uh, with 50 doses per order across the district. Now you see the map um, on the screen there uh, as you can see there's 10 clinics in our region that have been allocated uh, vaccine for this group um, and we're pretty spread out in that which is you know good news but it's not as um, readily available as we would expect so uh, we've spoken to most of the clinics in that and we'll be listing those clinics um, and the, where that people can call and contact them for appointments on our website um, we're just confirming that uh, we can do that with the clinics so we've got that for most of them now as well as they should be list listed on find my vaccine um, and the clinics understand to expect contact from patients that aren't their usual um, patients for this group um, and just noting that the, this is for those that are um, as in a special reasons for getting it group, so disability um, and specific. Uh, so if you're guiding patients, that will be the information you need. Um, I just thought I'd touch base on COVID positive pathways. Um, we are working with the PHUs um, and with the health uh, departments uh, about what does life look like um, come October 1st. And that's not quite clear yet, um, but there is some work happening in the background to let you know that we, we are trying to get that information uh, for you when it is clear and accurate. Um, and any changes that we do become aware of uh, will be notified through our usual methods through ECHO, our COVID newsletter and on health pathways. So not a big update for that today. Uh, just leaving this slide here about the COVID medication therapies, we did a, a review of the map um, last week and as you can see a lot of the orange dots have turned green so that means that there's an increasing access of those that are, st are stocking the um, both Paxlovid and Legevri are on site. Um, it doesn't tell you the numbers, but they're, each day they will have Paxlovid and Legevrio on site where, where you've got a green dot and some of them are just one or the other. So I think that's good news. And just noting as well, if you've got somebody looking for Evusheld, that's your purple star. Uh, and some links for resources uh, in this slide as well. Thanks, Trin. Uh, and a quick update on monkeypox. Um, expect a, na a name change coming. Um, they have even asked for um, some input from the world. And yes, Poxy McPox face has already been su suggested, obviously to go alongside Bodie McBoatface uh, from the last time the world was asked to name something. Uh, there are 20 pre-exposure doses for our region um, with 20 post-exposure doses held by each of the PHUs, so total of 10 each um, for that. Um, 
which means that likely those 20 have already been um, allocated to people that fit the, the strict criteria, which means there will be lots of people in our district that meet the criteria that don't have access to the vaccine at the moment. Um, uh, we're expecting more vaccine to arrive in September and we'll bring more information to you on that when we have it. Uh, the PHUs are also looking for providers and practices willing to test um, and follow up care for close contacts of a monkey pox case. So at the moment, the process is that once somebody is notified that they um, confirmed monkeypox from their test from their GP, the public health unit will follow up with the individual and uh, do some contact tracing of where they've been and who they've been with over the, the last, um, I think it's a few days. I think I'll leave that to the clinicians to tell me the answer to that in chat. Thanks, Kate. Um, and if they do identify people that have symptoms, they are looking for GPs and um, providers that will be uh, willing to be contacted to provide an appointment for doing a test uh, for this group. So if that's something that um, you're willing to take on, um, please reach out, let us know, uh, or reach out directly to the PHUs um, whose contact details are all in Health Pathways. Um, if you do have a suspected monkeypox case, um, it's an urgently notifiable disease uh, and follow the usual path for those, days, those diseases. And you'll be guided by um, the Department of Health on the other end of the line about what next steps are. And I think that's probably the easiest way for now. We are expecting a Health Pathways page on monkeypox, hopefully this week. Um, and I just put a little stat in there for as of the 12th of August, I couldn't get any sooner. There were 34 confirmed cases in Victoria and some of those are locally acquired. Uh, and I think that's it from me. Thanks, Katrina. All right. Great. Thanks, Naomi. And I, and I think uh, just from a memory from our conversation with Carolyn last week, um, yeah, this monkeypox um, assessment pathway is going to be a little bit tricky because really we're needing to, and Kate, I don't know if you've been keeping across it, but we've got to be considering it um, a rush that can be airborne and that we've got to wear N95s, gloves, gowns, change the sheets. So I know I used to kind of, if I had someone that I was concerned had syphilis, I'd probably do all like the sheets and I'd kind of do that anyway, but it is a new infection control process really that we're trying to you know, think of almost before we're, I don't know, Kate, what are we doing? We're kind of doing it, well, as soon as we hear there's a lesion on the genitals or? I think it, it's something that the airborne factor of it is a lot less um, of a concern than the close contact aspect. So there are definitely situations in which airborne spread is possible, um, but for most situations, the um, facial mask um, and standard um, plus contact PPE is going to be more than appropriate um, so that, you know, in most settings and circumstances, you may not have um, triage protocols set up for rashes within your practice. You probably should um, because something like chickenpox is actually something where we should be wearing um, N95s. I was having a look at the public health laboratory guidance last night. And one of the um, key reasons for wearing an N95 mask, if you are testing for monkeypox, is actually if you have a suspicion that it's varicella. Um, okay. So that's, that's actually something that I think that maybe we don't think about often enough from our own perspectives. And that may be due to our own immunity and things like that. So those kind of things are things that we'll get um, more to grips with, I think, over time. But I think the main thing is because we're so focused on COVID and we've really lost that sort of concern with COVID about um, touch point cleaning, those kind of things, with monkeypox, that is a real key concern. Um, so that's where if you have a suspected case, then that's going to be uh, something to sort of really um, be thinking about. The majority of cases at the moment have um, some epidemiological risk. However, that's, um, and that's something that I'll have a chat about in a little bit, but um, I think one of the things is they're not questions that you can necessarily ask at the front desk. So I think it, it's having that awareness um, that if somebody does present and comes in and tells you something, that that may be then where 
you sort of shift up your infection control as you move to sort of examining or you sort of suggest that maybe we move to the next stage um, in a different location. I guess I'm just thinking now going forward and especially as we're transitioning, well, you know, we're coming to that sliding out end of our current wave, but we are have been talking about strengthening primary care. And I know you and I, Kate, have had conversations over the years saying primary care you know, may not look the same. Um, you know, maybe we're going to revisit our um, hierarchy of controls again. You know, I was chatting to the receptionist yesterday when I popped in for my um, arm and and she said, you know, they're asking about, have you got any cold or flu symptoms? And people are saying, no, 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 no. And then they'll arrive at the door and say, yeah, but I've got a cough. It's like, okay, right, because that's lower. They think of upper, you know, and <laughs> do we throw on there any rash? You know, do we need to start thinking about our new triage protocols in this new year? I think, you know, that triage protocol should be sort of cold, cough, symptoms, gastro. Like it's the things that you don't want sitting in a waiting room full of other people. Um, And I think that from that perspective, that's maybe a shift that we need to be thinking about. Because I think one of the things is that as we come up to the end of September, um, we have the potential that a lot less of the respiratory clinics, a lot less of the government-funded testing centres are going to be funded. Um, So there is definitely going to be an increased need to either do more respiratory assessments and testing within general practice settings um, or sort of adjust your own protocols to be able to work through these things. I think that for a lot of time we've had a luxury somewhat of being able to sort of um, outsource or not think about this so much sort of within our own practice because we've been putting in place so many other things within our own practices. But it's it's almost like the time is coming right now um, for us to be um, really almost urgently putting in place some things that are going to allow us to sort of continue on with business should other things um, not continue. Mm. And that's the same, I think, with the COVID positive care as well. Okay, well, that's what our conversation is going to be about this morning. Kate, am I throwing to you for an update? Are you going, have you got some slides this morning? I had some slides, but I think um, I'll just have a quick look at them. But I think, you know, this is really what we were just talking about now. Okay. Um, Sorry, sorry, Kate, just before you get underway, Katrina wanted me to just flag there is a poll. I can't see the poll. Oh, there it is. Oh, there it is. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so if you wanted to have a little look, we're just keen to take a temperature check of what's happening. All right, thanks, And I think this is something we'd really like to sort of know how how you're thinking about things in your clinic. What changes are you putting in place now? Have you put in changes? Are you going to need to put in any changes or have you got your system sorted? If you've got your system sorted, we'd love to hear about them because I think that that's where we're really good at learning from each other in this group. It's been such a useful environment to do that because I think each of us have been going through journeys at a different stage depending on what resources we've had in our community um, so I think it's so helpful to hear what everyone's doing. So feel free to put some things in the chat around this. Um, and I think that that's about the accessing COVID care. But I think um, key as well will be about the COVID positive pathway care, because I think more and more I'm seeing and hearing of people who are just not registering rats, um, who are not um, sort of ending up at anywhere other than the GP Um, people who are eligible for antivirals who are not getting them because they don't realise they exist, all those kind of things that I think um, is an area of advocacy for our patients that we can really be putting in place in advance. Um, From a pathways perspective, hopefully within the next day or so, we'll have the medications in COVID health pathway up, which just puts everything in a really nice framework. It's got templates on there for the pre um exposure um sort of checklists it's got all sorts of things on there so I think that'll be a really useful one-stop resource for medication related things as well as links to all the phone numbers um so I'll just go on to the next slide which is just a flag we've got um monkeypox um coming up as well as a health pathway. And we've had some great input from our subject matter expert infectious disease um, specialists as well on that. Uh, But the key things I think, like I just wanted to flag, 
the PPE, um, so thinking about it um, when you've got a case, you know, that's that's kind of like for me I'd see it as the equivalent of you've got somebody in your room who suddenly is sort of says, I've got something, what do you do at that point? Like what do you do if it's a respiratory patient um, but you still need to see them for something else? Do you kick them out or do you go out and get yourself protected? Like what are our options? Um, what's your room set up in terms of what are your chairs? Are, you know, have you reverted to having surfaces that, you know, don't need so much wiping? Um, hopefully we don't have fabric chairs and we still have something that can be wiped, but thinking about those kind of things. Um, epidemiology, again, is key. It is mainly in the moment in the men who have sex with men community. And for this reason, I think it's really something that um, I wanted to sort of flag that um, it is a potential for stigma if it's not approached in the right way, in the way that we would approach any other sexual health check, those kind of things. So um, just making sure that when you are sharing information about people that it is done within privacy standards, all those kind of things, um, because identifying details, I think particularly when you have so few cases, um, it's really like if you think back to the start of COVID, when you've got a new infection that is within communities, it's um, not a nice thing to have any um, privacy breaches. So prevention um, is something as well to really think about uh, because of the fact that vaccination is so limited at the moment. And that's really the advice that we can provide to communities at the moment or people who ask, um, but we can provide information about the vaccinations that will be available come September um, or the vaccination really, because we will have um, just one vaccination available um, that Australia has purchased. Um, it's not going to be the old school smallpox vaccine that you get the big sort of divot scar in your arm. Um, it's got a lot of, um, a lot less side effects. It's really um, sort of quite low risk from that regards. But there's a lot of information there on the government website, Monkeypox Vaccine resource page. The consent form that's actually on there goes through quite a lot of the questions that you might ask. Um, and the health pathway um, will be really quite detailed as well um, on both vaccination and um, assessment, contact management. Um, but if you don't feel confident about looking at lesions, Dermnet is up there too. So that's all from me. All right, great. Thanks, Kate. Um, all right, we're going to move over to the Grampians Public Health Unit. Um, welcome, Jenny and Alan. Hello. Well, uh... We haven't coordinated uh, to go first, but I will uh, go. And I think Alan's um, got some slides as well. I'm just speaking uh, without slides this morning. So morning, everyone. Um, I know I've seen you all here previously. I do wear a couple of different hats and that has uh, recently changed. So I am a medical lead at the Grampians Public Health Unit, and I'm also the co-lead for COVID positive pathways in the Grampians region. Um, the, the setup of how that's delivered is a little bit different to uh, Barwon um, in that the public health unit is the public health response arm of um, uh, communicable diseases and other public health challenges. Uh, and the clinical response to that is delivered by the health services. So there's uh, care teams throughout um, each of the health services in the region. So each campus of Grampians Health um, and the other uh, seven uh, health services throughout the Grampians region. Um, so I'm here with my um, uh, co-lead uh, hat on and that's through the health service partnership. So uh, they were stood up um, about this time last year. Uh, it was a government um, policy that uh, a, a way for uh, health services to coordinate um, around uh, common healthcare delivery goals and challenges. Uh, and that was um, tasked to the health service partnership. So uh, they helped to, they're doing, um, working in the space of uh, a hospital in the home, uh, as well as the elective surgery blitz um, and the pandemic response, which is where the PA 
pathways sit under. Uh, so hopefully that's a little bit of the lie of the land um, about the roles in the Grampians region. Um, I really had hoped when Bianca, um, we were talking a couple of weeks ago now, um, and I think a couple of us were, or many of us maybe were at the 1st of August um, webinar that uh, went through the National Coronavirus Hotline um, uh, COVID care. And I'd really hope to be here today to be able to present the pathways um, from 1st of October onwards. But unfortunately, I'm not in a position to be able to do that. But we are hoping that that will come out um, in uh, hopefully next week, but certainly uh, in the next few weeks, given uh, October the 1st is not too far away. Generally speaking, um, what we do know to date is, uh, as, as has been said uh, this morning, the government has indicated that pathways will narrow the scope of care delivery to vulnerable populations. We're awaiting those vulnerable populations to be defined and have advocated that rurality uh, is, is a risk factor um, by the nature of having decreased access uh, to healthcare um, for many reasons that you all know very well. Uh, so we await the department's decision on uh, defining that vulnerable population group. Um, the uh, there we were, um, there's obviously a, a, a group of uh, people who will need that more intensive hospital level monitoring. Uh, and where, uh, when the department defines um, the nature of the pathways, we'll be able to have more information about how the health services will uh, look after those uh, cohort of patients. Um, I am really keen, I know that the care teams throughout the region have uh, been in quite close contact with many of their general practice colleagues in our communities. And I'm keen to understand uh, offline uh, if there's any impact uh, that you see without those care teams and the role that they they play. So I have talked to um, uh, have talked to a number of, of stakeholders and obviously the care teams. But if you've got any feedback for me, I would really appreciate that as well. Um, in terms of uh, what's uh, in play at the moment, because um, we still have uh, several weeks until the first of October, uh, so the pathways is still in the Grampians region. Um, those care teams are still continuing to provide pathways care to those who are streamed um, through. So that is uh, so that that is um, a nurse-led telehealth uh, model um, and in an outbound fashion. So uh, when they get a referral, they will uh, reach out to that patient um, to give care. The um, that ranges uh, from being able to provide care to absolutely everyone who's referred to that pathway. And as we all know, we're, we're not able to um, wrap care around absolutely everyone that comes to us. But if that's the case um, for a care team, they will advise the, uh, the case or the, the patient or the client um, of other ways to access care. And at the moment, that is uh, a network of GP respiratory clinics, either locally um, or via telehealth uh, to any, they're open, um, many of them across Victoria for a telehealth appointment um, and also from Victorian virtual ED. So if you're having challenges in um, accommodating appointments uh, for COVID positive patients. Uh, those are avenues and obviously daddy you can you can talk um, more specifically to UFS uh, but the, uh, the the availability of telehealth appointment appointments is the direction of the department um, that if there's not that access to pathways care or as as many of you have noted people don't register their rat and therefore aren't already linked in with that so the GP respiratory clinics um, as well as Victorian virtual ED and that can be clinician referred or that can be G uh, self referred for the patient they do have to have access to a um, internet a video enabled internet device um, which I appreciate is not available especially for a lot of our vulnerable populations um, and that's certainly something that we're bringing awareness to uh, ahead of the 1st of October. Um, so the I've also um, keen to get some data as it would be really good um, for us to know for our program um, development and, and transition and planning. Um, but also I'd be really keen to be able to present that to this community um, and the PHNs to, uh, and I'd 
you know, what, once that vulnerable population is defined, I think that, that the, the data that's looking to be captured will be, um, uh, we'll, we'll know what, what data we want to, to capture. So I'll keep you updated um, around that, but and I don't have any sort of firm numbers uh, at the moment. Certainly, there's um, uh, you know, a, a, a few hundred people on the pathways uh, every day in the region. So I'm happy to take any questions on or offline. Um, I might hand it over to Alan for a public health update. Thanks, Jenny. So um, as Jenny mentioned, I'm also one of the, the medical leads uh, at the Grand Pians Public Health Unit. And uh, I uh, work closely with her and Rosemary on, on the public health response. Uh, my background is as a, a GP, um, and I'm also now doing uh, public health training. So what I'm going to do is basically uh, just uh, give a, a brief update um, based on Rosemary's presentation about a month ago. Um, it's mostly good news. Uh, so as you can see from the uh, epi curve there, um, and particularly towards the right-hand side, you see a downward slope, uh, which is uh, a, a decrease in uh, the daily case numbers. And that's been uh, a good trend that we have observed over the last few weeks. Um, and that's also reflected uh, statewide uh, across Victoria in terms of the, the daily incidence of cases. Um, in terms of a breakdown, um, and I will draw your attention to the columns on uh, the far right uh, in both tables. So the, the, the one up the, the top is the one that Rosemary presented. Um, and then the one uh, down um, in the bottom right is the most current one. And you can sort of see uh, on average, um, the, the cases per 100,000 have, have decreased uh, across the region, uh, which is good news. So um, in terms of a, a snapshot um, of uh, a demographic breakdown of the cases, uh, so you can see uh, uh, so the, the confirmed and the probable cases and a breakdown by gender. Um, the median age is about the same. Um, so I think about a month ago, the median age was about 50, um, but we do see that uh, females are disproportionately represented in, in the group. Um, the, the middle age, uh, sorry, the uh, age groups uh, between 20 and uh, 40 are also most represented in, um, in the numbers. Um, so this is just a, a brief summary of, of the deaths um, in the region. Um, I've been uh, just handed some, some data, which I'm just going to go through um, in the next couple of weeks, um, just breaking down some of the, the clinical details and uh, demographic um, backgrounds of the individual deaths, just to see if there's some uh, correlation or any patterns that can be observed. But um, suffice to say, um, the, the death numbers uh, um, it increased um, over the course of the pandemic from 2020 to the current. Um, and you can also see a slight increase um, in the most uh, recent few months as well. Um, so in, in summary, um, the, the current epi curve. Hi, Alan, can I interrupt you for a second yeah. if you don't mind? Do you mind going yeah. back to the last slide? Because um yeah. Yeah. So, so I just wanted to ask you a quick question on this because, of course, some Rosemary has been highlighting, and we've been talking about this for the last few years about that died with COVID, died of COVID. Um, mm. And I can I notice you now you're breaking that down for us because that's so that's quite interesting. So, mm. is that is the data reporting has it changed or are you having to kind of interrogate the data yourselves? Uh, the latter. So I, I have I have been given an Excel file with a bit of a breakdown of, of the ages um, where they passed away, how it's been reported. I haven't been able to sift through that just yet, but hopefully um, for the next meeting, I'll be able to um, give you some more information on that. 
And what are your hopes? Because I guess there's some of the things that we would be looking at is um, it's, you know, it's really interesting and in trying to understand, you know, if there are particular comorbidities that, um, mm. yeah. So are you going to be looking in, what, what are you going to be looking into? What have you uh, so, yeah, so um, I guess age, gender, comorbidities, um, in particular looking at vaccinations, um, whether they were vaccinated and how many, um, if they were started on antivirals and when um, time that they were um sorry, uh, when they were diagnosed and, and if it's the first time they've had it, um, just to inform perhaps any public health messaging, um, particularly around testing and, and vaccinations. Yeah, great. And GPs, I want to ask you guys as well, because, um, you know, I think this is really exciting for us. We've been meeting now for two and a half years, and I know over time you guys have been saying, oh, it would be great if we had some data on this or that. Um, you know, definitely this is one of the pieces, Alan, that's been requested over the years, and and so I'm really pleased that now, um, you know, you're here this morning and having done this work for us. Thank you. Um, guys, you know, if you've got things that you're interested in, um, you know, what do you want to hear about? How is this going to be useful to you in practice? I guess we've got those two layers always with public health, haven't we, the, what we can message at the public health level um, and what actually would make a difference for you in terms of messaging at that individual level? Are there things that you're particularly interested in? And then the last thing I want to ask you is, is there any anyone kind of describing any associations as to why um, or correlations to why there's been this uptick in um, deaths in July? You said there was just a few, like, we're, we're heading, we were trending upwards in June, July. Is that a health service capacity issue? Or do you think that's a, is there, has anyone described why they think perhaps there's been more deaths towards the later end of winter, co-infection? Um, I think that's probably one. Um, I think that was sort of the, the BA45 peak. Um, so we had um, uh, quite quite significant numbers and, and I think uh, I guess the media reporting around um, access to, to tertiary care. Um, I think those were probably the two, two main factors and I guess um, sort of um, being winter and uh, and flu, um, uh, multiple outbreaks across um, numerous aged care facilities in the region, I guess, across the state as well. Yep. Okay, good. Thank you. So if you guys got any other questions, pop them in the chat, but I'll let Alan, I thank you, Alan, for letting me interrogate some of those things. Um, That's right. I'll let you move on. Thanks. Okay. And, and then this final slide. Um, so um, good news in terms of the current wave. So um, I think we're sort of in that uh, COVID normal, if you can call it that, um, where the case numbers are around the, the 100, around 200 mark. Um, but um, there's an expectation that there will be other waves, uh, possibly this year. Um, there's already a new strain, uh, BA 2.75 Centaurus, that's been identified in India. Um, but uh, I guess the good news is that there's also uh, vaccines in the works. Um, so Moderna's had uh, a bivalent vac vaccine um, approved for use in the UK. Um, and I think they're, they're working another one for BA45 specifically. But as you all know, um, the, the vaccine um, development process will always um, follow um, the strains. Um, so that's where public health um, advice comes in um, here. Um, so it's just to reinforce um, the importance of vaccination and um, getting the, the winter booster uh, where applicable um, to, to wear masks, um, encourage people who are symptomatic, even with a negative rat test, um, to remain at home um, and uh, to use um, air filtration devices if possible. So that's it from me. Thank you. I'm um, happy to take questions as well. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Ellen. So um, there's no questions uh, yet in the chat. I might create a small pause, though, in case anyone wants to bring themselves on the mic. Danny and Emily, did you have any questions or would you like to kick off your Prezi? Uh, we can kick off, I think. Um, I might start by saying good morning, everyone, and I'll just give you a really quick overview of our um, clinic and I apologise to people that have heard it all before and then I'll hand over to Emily who can talk more specifically about the sort of um, patients that the GPs are managing and, and um, all the other interesting things she might want to talk about. Um, so our uh, co-located testing and vaccination clinic is down there on the corner of Dana and Dufton Street. We're still open seven days a week. We've been able to maintain that um, and our aim is to try and continue to maintain that. Um, so Monday to Friday, 9 to 5.30 and weekends, 9 to 4. 
Um, so we're doing um, COVID testing. Um, we can do rats, we do PCRs, and we also do the viral panels. And you don't need to um, bring a pathology form for that. So um, if you have patients bringing you um, and you think that would be useful, you can send them to us and we will uh, do that. You don't need to worry about a pathology form. Uh, we're also vaccinating still, um, and we're offering AstraZeneca, Pfizer, pediatric Pfizer, Novavax, and from September we will be doing the Moderna six months to under five years. Um, and we're just still, it's only uh, just been announced, so we're just looking at how we'll make that work um, and give access to the people that are eligible. Um, our GP um, that works on site, and I have a fantastic group of GPs that have really been committed to working at the GPRC, um, some from UFS, some from, you know, external, and, it, and it's um, it's a really great group, so I'm really pleased that they've all stayed on board. Um, their role down there is really to do um, assessments for people coming in for a PCR who are particularly unwell. Um, so the nurse does an initial assessment and then the GP comes and has a look if they're um, particularly unwell. They manage sort of any... Um, vaccination emergencies or queries that patients might have. They do all the results management for the COVID swabs and the viral panels. Um, they manage the COVID positive patients and there's a few pathways into that. Um, we've started um, using the new pathway with um, getting notifications from Health Direct um, and we've had a few of those. Um, you might see some coming through into general practice as well. It's a little bit interesting in the way they classify um, the risk categories of people and probably uh, I would say it's not particularly accurate at this point. It's still a work in progress, um, but we're getting those notifications in. Um, the department is saying that it's um, the onus is on the patient really to reach out to their healthcare provider for follow-up, but a little bit grey with the um, professional indemnity insurers that the GPs have. Um, so at the moment, because it's low in numbers, we're actually reaching out to the people that we have notifications for and just touching base and, and seeing uh, how they're going. Um, and obviously people that have their PCR at our clinic, um, you know, they get their positive result and if they need follow-up, um, then our GPs can do that for them as well. Um, our role really is to support the general practices, we don't want to be doing it all, um, but we're there to support um, GP practices who, um, you know, aren't in a position to, um, for example, see their patients face-to-face -face if they're COVID positive because they can do that. They would initially um, potentially do a telehealth with our GP and then um, if the GP thinks they need face-to-face -face consultation, they can bring them in and we can do that. Um, we also see patients who don't have a regular GP um, and particularly after hours, we're doing, um, we're starting to notice a bit of support for rural communities. So on the weekends, you know, the places like um, Ararat, Stall, even Bendigo don't necessarily have sort of good access to after hours um, GPs. So those people are reaching out to us because um, they may have done a screen with their GP. They know they're eligible for antivirals, they're COVID positive, but they've got no access um, to GPs after hours. So they're ringing our clinic and we're being able to facilitate that by telehealth. Um, our funding at the moment for the clinic is until the end of September, but there's every indication, even though the Commonwealth haven't confirmed it yet, there is every indication that that will be extended, um, particularly given the state clinics are winding up probably in September. Um, and they're doing a lot of work to set us up um, in the new COVID positive pathways um, as an access point for people. So. They're not going to put all that work in in preparation for October and closes in September. So um, we're just waiting for a formal announcement. Um, the clinic also has been given a supply of the state-funded um, masks for people. So people come in for PCR and they need masks or they can come into the VAX clinic if they're well and they're vulnerable and um, can't get masks anywhere else and we can give them a 10-pack of the N95 masks. Um, and I just wanted to touch on the Evershield um, that's available through our um, supercare nursing services across the state, um, among other places. Um, but I'm only raising it because UFS manage 16 of those uh, services. Um, and our UFS pharmacy in um, Ballarat is one of those. So if you have patients who meet the eligibility criteria from Evershield, 
um, for Evershield, sorry. It's um, available there and it can be administered by the nurse when they work between 6 and 10 p.m. Um, at night. And I'll hand over to Emily, unless anyone had any questions about all of that that I just blurted. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. That was excellent. And, Naomi, can I um, ask you to whack a um, map of the GPRCs, a link in the chat, because I immediately go to, okay, so perhaps Commonwealth funding may continue. Jenny, do you mind clarifying? Um, Danny made a suggestion that the state services are set to wind up, but has that been an announcement of such or are we...? So I think, do you, do you mean, Danny, the, the state, like, COVID-positive pathways? Uh, GPRCs. And the, GP, the state-funded GPRCs. The state-funded GPRCs, my understanding is that they are continuing. Certainly they're, 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 um, they seem to be part of the transition plan. So I'd be very, I, I don't have a formal sort of, we don't have one in our region. So no, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm loosely in touch with uh, that. But yeah, Naomi's can, got a hand I, I up. Can answer, I can answer that question. Um, so the state funded GPRCs uh, were funded for a total of 15 months at this stage. Now they all have various start dates and that. So some of the GPRCs uh, that are state funded in Melbourne um, will finish um, early next year, uh, but others uh, like the one we're setting up um, in Warrnambool, and that will uh, be open next week. Our GPRC in Warrnambool is open next week. Uh, we'll go for about 15 months from then. So, um, and there is an, an official announcement coming on that one too, but, you know, you hot off the press here that there'll be a GPRC set up in Warrnambool as of next week uh, for 15 months. Awesome. And so Thanks for sharing. The Commonwealth ones um, in our region are at Barwon, Horsham, Ballarat. I hope I haven't forgotten anyone that's in our region and those are the three commonwealth ones in our region uh, yeah because barwin's got cardinia and epic and then ufs for you guys in ballarat and then lister house in horsham is that yeah, yeah. okay and but so they're not all open seven days a week like we are they a lot of them have quite reduced hours now yeah and now i guess that's a question i'm going to ask you guys to give me some feedback on because in my mind i'm thinking as this as we create this transition you know capacity tracking how are we going to do that in primary care we're such a heterogeneous group how are we going to understand capacity and you know we're going to need to think about that at the clinic level and and be guessing how many cases might come through and be able to make sure we've got availability of appointments but also be thinking about our weekend arrangements and we've been talking about that all the way along um, how are we going to manage capacity? I'm just going to put that out there. Emily, over to you, and then maybe we can keep com this conversation going. But, yeah, thanks and welcome. And thanks for sharing your experiences. Cool. Um, thanks, guys. Um, so I'm Emily, for those that don't know me. Um, I Just to clarify and not misrepresent myself, I'm not actually a GP. So I'm a um, um, PGY10, haven't got a fellowship background in did a bit of physician's training. I have done, I have been a GP reg as well. I haven't quite settled on anything, but I've been in the COVID sphere for the last couple of years. So hotel quarantine, the nursing home outbreaks, vaccinating, all bits and pieces. So I've landed at the COVID clinic here. So that's, that's my background. Um, yeah, as Danny said, basically what the kind of patients that I see, one category would be on the at the testing clinic if there's anyone the nurses are particularly concerned about clinically they'll just give me a buzz and ask me to come um, do a quick review generally people are not very sick there's there's it's definitely the majority of people we see are on the milder end of the spectrum um, so then into the COVID positive pathways that we've you know, in the last few months started picking up. Um, to generalise, again, the broad categories of people we see, I'm seeing a lot of generally fit, young, healthy people that just need some reassurance and review and really basic advice on just managing urty symptoms. So it's really, you know, stock standard, you know, managing their sore throat and their blocked ears and, Reassurance, and especially for um, parents with younger children, they just want a doctor to see them and have a listen to their chest and, and reassure, basically. Um, the other category that we've been seeing lots of increasing in the past few weeks is the people that um, are requesting antivirals. It seems that that's becoming much more 
um, people are much more aware of that, um, I, I suppose, because it's been in the media and um, and whatnot and the, the broadening of the um, eligibility criteria. So, yeah, we're now getting a lot of um, telehealth, uh, well, calls, uh, which end up being telehealth reviews for antivirals, but they're generally older people with um, pretty well-managed comorbidities who are sort of reasonably educated and know that they're eligible. So they call up specifically saying, oh, I think I need the antivirals. Um, most of the time they are eligible, um, sometimes not. Um, and again, to be honest, generally they're quite uh, well. Um, so I'll do a telehealth with them first. And there's actually not so many that need to go on for a face-to-face -face appointment. Um, I haven't seen any significant deteriorations in the people we've been monitoring, but that's probably partially due to the fact that um, the, you know, the teams from um, the base, I believe, are flagged the higher risk people, individuals. So it's, it's a biased sample there. But on the whole, um, it's, they've been quite easy to manage. Um, the, we're sort of in close contact with the pharmacies and getting the hang of, you know, getting the, the, the scripts through, which um, I, as, as we um, alluded to before, the weekends have gotten much busier lately now that there's this increased demand for the antivirals and many clinics will be shut over the weekend. Our, our weekend doctors, I think, have been um, really swamped. Um, so that'll be interesting to see how, how that, um, how other GPs manage that going forward. And also feel free anyone to jump in any questions or comments, just please, yeah, jump in. Yeah, please do everyone because, yeah. um, you know, now's your chance to kind of um, hear about what might be coming to us. Um, what are people getting sick with if they are getting sick, Emily? I know we were all really worried um, in the first round. Yeah, Jenny, we were all really worried in the first round about silent hypoxia and there was so much discussion about monitors and, um, you know, getting SATs monitors, but I'm not getting, I'm not, we're not hearing as much of that. Jenny, I think Jenny wanted to, did you want to jump in here, Jenny? Yeah, I've, I've got a question and I can and make a quick comment on the back of that. So, yeah, the, in terms of the um, the pathways, uh, the COVID positive pathways from the state government, um, that saturation monitoring is now um, up to the clinic, clinician discretion. So that would often be used with, um, with someone who was experiencing breathlessness or had another underlying respiratory reason that um, monitoring SATs is important. Um, mm -hmm. They are available. It's, I'd, I don't want to predict the future, but they're coming becoming a little bit like a thermometer where, you know, that's something you have in your in your medicine um, box at home. Um, they're around $60 or so, and they're pretty widely available at uh, uh, pharmacies. So, Danny? Oh, I was going to say we have a supply to give people to take home and use to monitor as well. So we can, um, they're designed to be single use, but most people return them. So we clean them and, and they go back into circulation again. But we do have those as well. And that's really good. And, and it, I'd, Emily, I'll take your comment on that. Um, I don't have any sort of set data on how the usefulness of um, pulse oximetry as a sole measure of sort of deterioration or uh, need for higher care. Um, but uh, the, certainly that um, picture of silent hypoxia where people just completely drop their bundle um, without having any other signs of respiratory distress or, or hypoxia um, is not a feature that we're seeing in the current um, uh, variants. And my question um, uh, has escaped me, but oh, uh, uh, no, it's escaped me, but I'll come back to it. <laughs> you can comment on that one. Um, yeah, so yeah, on that, um, completely agree. Um, I haven't seen, even in the in the early days when in hotel quarantine, I, I saw very little of that you know silent hypoxia that we heard about from the US when they were when they were struggling with it and certainly I'm not seeing any of that at the moment um, with regards to the pulse oximeters um, if I'm being honest there's very few patients that I think they're beneficial for um, and there actually was a, a systematic review that's come out um, a couple of months ago that found that they don't um, particularly change outcomes um, and that really being guided by, you know, 
symptoms um, seems to give just as good a result. And I find that to be true. Um, there's all sorts of other sort of validated methods of, you know, assessing hypoxia over the phone, like getting them to count quickly, but from one to 20 in one breath, there's all these sorts of things. But really I find, you know, people describing their symptoms is is just as effective. Um, sometimes the, the SATS probe can be helpful, I think, for reassurance in more anxious or vulnerable people. But then I find that those people already have their own at home anyway. <laughs> they've already taken that step. Um, with regards to what, what we're seeing people become sick with, as I said, I've at our clinic, I've, I've not seen any real respiratory deterioration. Again, that might be, you know, a function of the fact that they might just present to hospital and not, not you know, not call us back. Um, but dehydration has been another big one um, that we see in, in young people and old people as well, um, just poor oral intake due to feeling generally um, lousy. Um, yeah, a couple of people have been off to hospital with dehydration. Again, we, we're seeing the milder end of the spectrum, but um, that's, yeah, I always think the fluids talk. Not driving their fluids hard enough rather than profuse vomiting as such. Just Correct, like, yeah. yeah. Again, just support, yeah. Yeah, Jenny. Yeah. Did you remember your um, question? I'm just wondering, one thing um, uh, that often is a barrier or a challenge for um, prescribing of the early therapies is access to pharmacy support for that. Um, I'm just wondering in your experience how much, uh, obviously pharmacies are a really important part of that prescribing pathway, but on, on average how much do you sort of need to use them and things like rejigging Webster packs and things which are, uh, make the situation a bit more complicated as well um, or maybe restarting medications that were stopped for Paxlovid. Is that, yeah, if you could just provide some comment on that, that'd be great. Mm. Um, yeah, Webster pack is an interesting one that hasn't actually come up yet. Um, I haven't thought of that. Um, yeah, hasn't occurred, hasn't happened yet. Um, I personally, I every time I prescribe the antivirals, I'm calling the pharmacy first to make sure they have stock. So we're always in pretty close contact um, and most of our patients require delivery as well. Um, again, I think the, the weekend has been a bit different when there's been much more contact from, from rural areas like stall and, and whatnot. So I'm not actually familiar with what stock levels are like, you know, outside of our main, you know, the 24-hour Sturt Street UFS pharmacy, which is sort of my default. But um, everyone knows we it, is, Sorry, yeah. it is difficult for people in places like Stall and Ararat because the, the only pharmacy I think closes at lunchtime. So um, right. that creates a challenge for those, those people. Um, just picking up the Webster Pack comment, Jenny, often what the pharmacies will do if it needs to be in a Webster Pack is put it in a separate Webster Pack. So the person has two Webster Packs for the period of time rather than try and put it into the existing um, Webster pack, but they often will need to tweak the medications if you're stopping and starting some. So um, that can be a challenge. But those patients are often, they've got a GP who's well managing them because they've got the Webster pack already. So our intervention might be to get them started because the clinic's not open on a weekend, but then it'll often go back to the actual GP. I'm keen to find out, Jenny, whether you guys, um, as you're interrogating the data, whether there's any... Um, you know, we, we're, we're really trying to get them on as soon as possible and definitely within five days. But has there been what's borne out now in the data as we've got more clinical experience, how important is it for them to kind of, you know, jump on it early? Does it make a difference to outcomes? We're here, we know in rural areas there may be that, that gap because of pharmacies closed. You know, how critical is that? It'd be interesting to find out, again, if any, you know, one's done a series since we've been doing this now more commonly. Um has Jenny had to duck off as she? I think she might have. Um, we'll pop up a poll because I want to see what people are doing. Um, how are people accessing, how are patients accessing care and what are you guys doing? So 13% are doing face-to-face, 56 telehealth only. And I wanted to ask you, Emily, um, do you think phones are not released or is there a real indication for video tele-assessment? Um, I've been using phone only and that's what I've been used to actually, for, you know, during the whole pandemic um, and it's easy enough for us to 
then bring them in for a face-to-face visit. I know that's different in GP clinics, but I find that system works, yeah, yep. for us. Yeah, yeah great. And um, analysis at remote patient monitoring, telephone only or video? Um, remote patient monitoring is, is mainly phone, but we have access to video. So particularly, we would t- sorry, sorry, Alison Miller, GP, but also working the COVID team in BHS. So we do tend to just use phone. Um, often just getting onto people is a hard thing. So you just keep ringing them until you get onto them. So even though they're sitting at home with COVID, so we all have that that difficulty wherever we are. We do use phone, but um, we'll uh, you have capability of using video, and we'll particularly use that for kids. Because it's very hard to sometimes assess children um, without seeing them, and often the video provides quite different information to you know, the, or, or can reinforce the message one's getting from a parent. And there are things that you can pick up that you can um, encourage and say, well, they, these are some good signs I can see in your child. Just provides that additional reassurance um, that actually can avoid um, needing a needing a face to face or or a presentation to either Emily or the emergency department. So there is scope for both, but more fine. Yeah, I've got one more minute and I want to throw a couple of questions in a couple of different directions. Um, question Bianca, can I just take, say two things really quickly yes. that I thought of that um, are really useful tools for the GPs and for our GPs? If you're seeing your patients for other things, they're coming in to see you in the practice, it's really worth doing... Um, a discussion with them about whether they will be eligible for um, antivirals if they should get COVID, um, and even just give them a little letter that says I've been assess- I've assessed my patient and they would be eligible. Blah blah blah. Because one of the difficulties for our patients when our GPs when they're seeing people is they don't have access to that complex medical history. So if you can do that in another visit really quickly and give them a, a note that says they're eligible, then when they come to us on a weekend. Um, it's very easy for us to go, our GPs to go, yep, great, they've had that assessment. Um, And the other thing is, I'm sorry, Naomi, if I'm stealing your thunder, but the PHN are working with um, Healthily um, to develop all the GoShare bundles and some of the practices will be using those quite um, extensively um, on managing COVID at home for people, which GP practices and will use it as a tool as well. We'll be able to text out to their patient a whole bundle of information about managing their COVID at home, how to stay safe, how to protect other people they're living with, when to escalate their care, what sort of things to look for, how to look after themselves. And it'll be a group of, you know, GPs and GPRCs that are managing these people talking about that. Um, And so that'll be a real useful tool. You just text out to them. It's cheap. It sends out to them. And then, um, you know, it'll have a thing in there that says, if you're unwell or you're concerned, you know, call your GP. If you don't have a GP, call us, that sort of thing. So, that will make the notifications, should they um, increase a lot, easier to manage because we'll be able to send those people all that information and then the onus is back on them. There's still a cohort of people who don't have smartphones and things, but for the majority, that's a really great way of getting them information. And that should be available within a couple of weeks. And Naomi's going to tell us about that in two weeks' time. Oh, sorry, Naomi. I'm, 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 no, that's fine. I'm really hoping to do that. I just uh, we've we've got to do a little bit of filming, and that because there's a video component, and I just wanted to make sure that's ready, and then we should have a, a date that it's going to go live. I'm building the anticipation. So. Yes, you you are, Daddy. You're going to sell it. Everybody's going to want to get GoShare. Ah, um, that's great. Okay, so there's a GoShare bundle happening. I'm hearing you're saying the gap, Danny, is at the moment that that risk stratification isn't there yet, which we suspected because the state and Commonwealth criteria are actually different and we're hoping they're going to tighten that up and they've got what six weeks to do it so I think we'd be keen to kind of keep chatting to you about that I want to interrogate that a bit more but I'm I'm feeling a bit more reassured Emily for what you're describing um I did have another question because I'll say as you said you know this is the triage category but this is the medium risk group right it's the high risk that are still going to you're seeing medium risk yeah so again I want to get right into that you know who are you not seeing and what could possibly go wrong there because are they going to come to us so that's another the question I've got um, but I think we haven't got time to answer that but maybe we'll all keep this conversation going and maybe we'll kind of kick off there in two weeks when we um come to Bowen but Alison you'll be hearing from me because um, I'm keen to kind of understand again you know from your friend at remote patient monitoring you know what's happening with those guys and and do we need to be do we need to be saying we can't take on high-risk pathways at this point in time just give us the mediums and and don't give us the highs and mediums. I don't know. Do we feel strongly about that? It's the other thing I'm kind of keen to hear from you guys about. I think there's a um, 
there's an issue with language as well with what high and medium risk are and there's a difference between what the state describes as high high risk so high risk in a state profile are those that are in hospital or in an emergency department yeah. um whereas high risk in the commonwealth primary care model is high risk in the in the case of primary care um so they actually might be unwell but not unwell enough for a hospital but unwell that they need to see a doctor for review um, or have a risk of deterioration because of their other risk factors which would make them high risk rather than them being quite an unwell person um, and I think there's a there's a nuance there that um, it's crucial. to date we can't seem to get um, a clear definition of why they're different and we can't align um, but yeah okay. I think well, that's something already that's reassuring because we all think about high risk because they're the ones in hospital. So why are they coming past a GP? I mean, that really concerned me and medico legally. We've only got two hours to see them. Yeah. Okay. All right. A bit more, bit more um, tweaking to do on that one, and that's probably where we're going to be focusing our conversations, right? I think so too, and that is is understanding um, that yeah, high risk for the state of Victoria is somebody that is already in hospital or somebody that should be in hospital, um, and the medium risks are those that are being watched by the health service partnerships at the moment, and it's those patients that are looking to be transferred to primary care come October, uh, and a lot of which already are being transferred to primary care. So the those that fit into the state uh, medium risk profile is it becoming a smaller and smaller group. Uh, so there's a lot of people that you know, six months ago were on that medium pathway that are already in uh, primary care being cared for uh, by the teams that have spoken today and by um, GPs like those that are here with us. Thanks, everyone. I'm sorry to hold us over a few minutes. Um, yeah, I put it down to being, um, you know, just a bit relaxed now that I've been on the Panadine Forts all week. <laughs> Sorry, Jerry, no, thank you so much. It's been so interesting. It's because it's so interesting and there's such useful information and, um, and uh, yeah, I really appreciate this group of um, this Brains Trust. So thanks, everyone, for sharing um, your knowledge and, and we'll, we'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks, Emily and Danny. Um, we'll keep the conversations going. Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google West Vic PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network. And you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions. And you'll also receive our resource pack that includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks, and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.